it has been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its cheers. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. Welcome to this episode of the Green is the Color podcast. Today we have a guest who's going to take us into the late 90s and early 2000s to both indoor and outdoor soccer in Portland. From interning to front office to behind the mic and many many iterations of radio and cable TV covering sports in this area. When it comes to Portland, U.S. and international soccer, this guy has seen some things. I'm excited to welcome Andy McNamara. Andy, how are you? I'm doing great, Billy. Thanks so much. And I really appreciate that you've taken on this project. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, appetite for it. And I've really enjoyed listening to to the previous episodes up to this point. Thank you. We won't um, we won't break that string. Right. We'll just we'll keep that going. All right. So this is I'm excited, too, because, as, you know, anytime I have a I mean, obviously with this project there's a personal connection to everybody, but someone I actually shared a, a you know a, a place with not just um as i found out in doing the research college uh right but um you know like with with the pythons right someone i personally interacted with in my career and so this, this is exciting i've got a lengthy bio here but i'm going to read it because um what you're doing or what this podcast is doing this episode that other ones hadn't is it's we're taking a step out of the nasl era specifically with this, which I think is exciting because it's it's we're now opening up so much more that we have to talk about uh, with soccer here. So Andy came to the West from his place of birth, New Jersey, via the University of Maine, a school he left early to take a play-by-play announcer job with AM Radio's KUIK out of Hillsboro, Oregon. He did finish his journalism degree at our shared undergrad alma mater, Pacific University, in 1996. Previous to finishing that degree, Andy started as an intern with the Continental Indoor Soccer League's Portland Pride in 1995. From there, Andy worked, Andy worked his way through the team's front office, serving as Director of Media Relations from 1996 to 1999, which included a change of the franchise's name from the Portland Pride to Portland Pythons. By 2000, when indoor soccer in Portland was over, Andy was the VP of Communications and Soccer Operations and had acquired experience in the director of communication, excuse me, experience as the director of communications for the World Indoor Soccer League from 98 to 99 and media relations assistant to the U.S. national soccer team. From there, Andy enjoyed a five-year stint as the assistant director of media relations with Portland State University Athletics. Then, and this is where it gets super applicable, from from 2001 to 2012, Andy was the radio play-by-play announcer for the Portland Timbers, which means he was on the inside for the USISL, A-League, and Major League Soccer iterations of the club. He's also worked as an international television commentator for the 2001 FIFA Under-17 World Championship, CONCACAF Gold Cup, and FIFA World Cup qualification. In addition to lending his voice and knowledge to other sports, Andy was an announcer and play-by-play soccer analyst on television's Direct TV, Fox Sports Network, and Root Sports. His work with the 2005 USL Timbers earned him a nomination for the National Sportscasters 
and Sports Writers Association Announcer of the Year Award. Andy then worked for the University of Oregon Athletic Department as the Assistant Director of Media Services and Assistant Athletic Director in Athletic Communications. After his time there, at, after that, he went to Lane Community College directing their Creative Services Department and now is at Oregon State University where he is currently the Senior Director of Marketing and Communications. How was that? <laughs> yeah, you've yeah, done a lot. Uh, it, it really, it, it jogs my memory for sure. Uh, and I, I'm really happy that we're doing this because selfishly, uh, every once in a while, certain things pop up. Um, I have memories or I think about something, you know, something reminds me of something. I'm like, wow, I did this or I did that. And I, I keep meaning to kind of write those things down so that someday, you know, my, my kids, kids will, will be able to, to learn a little bit about me maybe. Um, so this is great. This will, uh, this will awesome. s- sort of serve as that, <laughs> serve that function for me personally. So. Well, that's Appreciate perfect. That. Yeah. And I, I hope we're doing this not just for the families of the people involved, but, you know, I started writing essays about one about the 35 yard shootout and then, you know, the longer one about Clive Charles. And I felt privy to, to interviews with people and hearing their stories. And exactly that that thing happens. Right. You go to a certain place and then other things start coming up. And I just thought people need to hear these stories in the people's voices who lived it because it's so much better than anything I could write. Um, so I'm happy that this record is starting to exist. Uh, but I've got to ask, Andy, why sports? Um, I was a huge sports fan growing up. My my dad, um, you know, took me to games, uh, you know, from the from my earliest memories, um, you know, whether that was going to baseball games or hockey games. Um, he played uh, rec sports, so he would bring me along to softball games and things like that. So uh, I really had no choice in the matter to become uh, a sports fan as a kid. And from there, um, I, I, you know, once I saw that there might be a possibility to have a career or to work in sports, that, that, that then became my focus. And I always was interested in broadcasting. Um, I think my, the first career I ever thought what I wanted to do was to be a game show host, um, <laughs> which is certainly bizarre. I uh, didn't make it to 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 that uh, that particular career, but uh, was able to get into broadcasting in college. I was a broadcast journalism major at the University of Maine, and that that really opened some doors for opportunities of actually calling sports and uh, being a uh, the sports director of. The student radio station there doing basketball, football, and then ice hockey, which uh, which became uh, probably my favorite sport as a broadcaster at that point. And, uh, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that really ultimately led me into soccer in a in a unique way. Yeah. So, wow, there's a lot of I didn't have on the question sheet that you just went through, but I've got to ask with the Portland pride or pythons, for those that don't know, four 15 minute, 15 minute quarters in a soccer game, there's time between the quarters where there's entertainment. Did you ever channel your inner game show host for any of those promotions between quarters? Uh, Possibly, you know, not necessarily with the pride and the pythons, although there was one game where we staged a, um, an ejection. So the public address announcer, got ejected from the game for 
basically ragging on the referees over the microphone. And it was, we, we clued in the refs ahead of time, like it was all planned out. He had some place to be and he couldn't do the whole game. And so I ended right. up coming down from the broadcast, uh, uh, from the radio broadcast. I was doing it, I believe, with Bob Akamian at the time. And so I went down and then did the PA for the rest of the game. And so, you know, I've done a lot of PA announcing over the years. And, and that's probably the closest thing I can think of uh, in terms of really kind of leaning into that game show host uh, um, mentality, if you will. Yeah. And it's, you know, we're talking uh, sports and I know we've got sort of a, I do, I did do a real um, chronological trajectory with a lot of this, but I do want to jump ahead because, and maybe we could table this question, but you mentioned how much you liked hockey uh, as a sport to call. And there's a similarity to that in indoor soccer, right? I mean, literally the same arena in most cases, but, you know, five players, a goalie and some similar movements. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that was really my end to the, the Portland Pride in 1995. Um, I, I actually had been doing some, some uh, PA announcing for Portland State Athletics prior to that, uh, in addition to doing high school sports on the radio. And so I knew some folks at, at Portland State, and um, uh, Randy Nordloff was a one-time athletic director at Portland State, became the general manager of the Portland Pride. Uh, so that's how I, I I was able to to get my foot in the door as an intern, and then um, once they once they learned that I had some hockey experience, it's you know a lot of the descriptions of of indoor soccer at the time were that it's hockey with a ball. You know, it's the same number of players. Um, there's you know there there are there's no formal substitutions. You know, you're coming over over the the boards from the bench and and so it's very similar um kind of like a combination of hockey and basketball so it was just a natural even though i didn't really have a soccer background or a whole lot of knowledge frankly about the sport at all um i was able to kind of fake it if you will by by using my um my broadcasting experience in other sports to be able to seamlessly kind of move into calling the indoor game. So this is something I'm seeing a lot in, um, e not the faking it part, but when I when I talk about, um, it's actually I think something better than that. It's, um, you know, I've talked to the players so far that I, I've talked to in this, and and even uh, Clive Toy. It's just a matter of um, being present in something and being willing to put yourself in it to immerse yourself in the moment um, that begets other opportunities and and has really grown the game of soccer specifically in this country because nothing's going to be perfect to start out and you just sort of have to show up and do your thing um, and let the other things take care of themselves, which is even like, you know, this podcast or this, this project, it's, you know, you do it or you don't. Um, but, you know, being there and being present seems to be the thing that, you know, allowed you to get to where you are now. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think that over time, you know, I started to, to lose the imposter syndrome a little bit and, and become more comfortable and, and really um, learn to have an appreciation for and respect for, for the game. And, uh, you know, as you probably know, as a, as a, uh, a former player, you know, there, there were some, I, I think that there, there was a divide among uh, players and coaches to a certain extent 
recognizing that indoor soccer was a sport. And so you had, you, you had sort of the, this, um, this interesting dynamic, a pool of, of people that, uh, that were either soccer players or coaches or fans that would sort of shun the, the indoor sport or, or, you know, if, if you played that instead of outdoor soccer, you weren't good enough to play, you know, pro outside. So you played indoor. Um, So like coming into the, the soccer world, as I did someone who really, you know, saw the, the entire sport as kind of a blank slate. uh, That was interesting for me to, to just sort of see the, the, the infighting almost, you know, among folks in the sport as we were trying to grow the indoor game with the pride and the pythons. And then you had, you know, you had, uh, uh, you know, other people that w- would, were not going to go out of their way to help us out in any way um, on the, on the outdoor side. So it was uh it was a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. I think you've just described soccer in this country um, for as long as we can remember, there seems to be a, you know, uh, that that doesn't seem to be exclusive to that specific time, right? I think, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, so yeah, you come across country. I'm going to go backward a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, and you take a radio play-by-play job calling Metro League, which is a high school league. Uh, for those that may not know, football and basketball for that AM station KUIK out of Hillsboro. So how did this come about? How did what was the process that got you from calling your college um, sports in Maine to like? across country to, uh, to hear. Yeah. So when I was a senior in high school, I went to high school in Maine and, um, my, my parents moved to Oregon. And so I stayed, uh, I stayed back East and going to the university of Maine in Orono. And, um, I would come back, you know, during, during breaks, uh, or come, come West during breaks to, to visit my family. And so, you know, that was sort of my, you know, that was my connection to to Oregon and to Hillsboro, Portland area specifically, because that's where they lived. And uh, yeah, so I, I was sort of on the lookout for um, potential uh, announcing jobs in the Portland metro area. And I don't remember, you know, it's been so long now, I don't re- recall if it was that I was looking for, you know, potentially summer work. Or if I was, you know, I, I don't I don't remember the exact circumstances of applying for that job, but I do remember speaking to my advisor at the University of Maine and and uh, and telling him I had this opportunity to to get a full time job. Uh, you know, it wasn't full time as far as just calling games. I also worked at the radio station and ran ran the production board for you know, their, their various news, uh, syndicated news programming and would cut commercials and that sort of thing. So it was a little bit more than just the, just the, uh, the play-by-play announcing. But um, surprisingly to me, at at least at the time, my advisor was like, Hey, if you have the opportunity to get a job, um, take it. He's like, you can finish your degree, you know, at any point, but you know, those opportunities, don't necessarily come come along and and you're going to 
you can get a, a degree and you'll have this, you know, this achievement and this, this piece of paper that shows that you did it. But if you don't have the experience, you know, what's going to help you more in your career going forward. And so he really um, sort of hammered home the fact that gaining that experience was going to be as valuable or more valuable than the, the degree. And I think, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, I think he turned out to be correct. And I was able to, to then finish my degree um, at Pacific, go boxers. Absolutely. Um, my, my, the, my diploma still says the University of Maine, but I, I do appreciate uh, Pacific taking me in for my final uh, semester and, uh, and and getting me across the finish line. But that's kind of how that that came about. And um, and really, I've been here ever since. Uh, so it's I, I, I miss the history of the East Coast. I love New England. But um, yeah, this is this is certainly home. now. Yeah. So I want to mention a few things there. First of all, I don't, you know, people listening may not know, but I graduated my undergraduate from Pacific University, played soccer there. Um, I was there at the same time you were there, and I'm making air quotes because it sounds like you, you know, you were there, but also you're working at the same time. But I want to designate, uh, I want to say this specifically, Pacific University's soccer program, which is the thing that took me to college, uh, was started by Timber's great Jimmy Conway. Um, and I don't know if a lot of people know that, but I, I think it's important to say because that's, you know, something we're talking about here. You know, it's just touched a lot of people and brought a lot of people together that a program that started from, you know, someone who came here um, has this connection and we're going to go forward through that. But yeah, so how did, and you sort of talked about this, my, yeah, my two questions that I have next are actually, we 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 touched on a little bit, but, you know, how did you end up in 1995 interning with the Portland Pride? Um, and then I was going to ask, you know, what did you think of the indoor sport? Did you have any prior experience with that? But you, you've sort of talked about that with the hockey, but how'd you end up there? Yeah. And, so, and yeah, I, I, had, um, I'd heard about the, the pride, uh, like I mentioned, Randy Norloff was the athletic director at Portland state. I didn't really know Randy personally, but I knew other folks at Portland state that knew him and, um, that sort of. You know, got me got my foot in the door for a potential internship and and then once I was w- once I was there I, I believe my my title as as an intern was broadcast coordinator so I was hired to to help um, set up you know make contact with visiting teams or or away teams that we would be going to play games at to make sure that they had you know the phone lines set up and power and a space for us to broadcast and that sort of thing. And Bob Akamian was the primary play-by-play man uh, at that time for, for the pride. And um, that's, that's how I, you know, became a part of, uh, of the staff there at the Portland pride. And that was my first exposure to indoor soccer. And, and as I mentioned previously, because of my experience with hockey, it was just a natural um, in terms of both broadcasting and then also personally, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed watching it. I thought it was an exciting sport. Um, it was one of those those sort of light bulb moments where you see something for the first time and you're like, man, more people need to see this because it was it was entertaining. And, you know, like you mentioned, between periods or between quarters, there were, you know, there were different events going on and it was a real sort of it, 
it had a, a, a real unique kind of atmosphere. Uh, it was family friendly, but it was also, you know, a really skilled, um, exciting game that, that I think anyone who is a sports fan of any sport would, would enjoy watching. So that, that was sort of what, you know, I, I definitely got the bug. Um, and then ultimately, you know, that led to uh, working uh, with more traditional outdoor soccer. Before we we leave the indoors, I do want to ask about. So you started interning. Um, I want to ask two questions about that. One is, did you ever have to? Did that also at some point involve driving a van to the airport to pick up a visiting team? Or there seems to be, you know, job descriptions certainly overlapped in those times with with the Pride and Pythons. And then the second one is, how did you talk a little bit about how you moved up from from being an intern to where you ended? Yeah, yeah. Um... They were really good to me. You know, they, I, I felt like, um, you know, I really wanted to do a good job. You know, it was, it was my first opportunity with a, with a professional sports team, even though it's probably considered like a minor league, you know, it's still professional sports. So I was, I was all in and uh, Bob Akamian allowed me to, to start participating in the broadcasts as, a, as an analyst and do interviews um you know they uh, there were definitely intern related tasks as well it was a small staff so you know whether it was you know putting on the mascot suit and going out to a to a uh, a youth soccer camp <laughs> you know i did that um i wore the washington warthog costume for the uh, mascot soccer game that um was part of the all-star game that was hosted in portland uh, so yeah, there was, I, I, I wore my, my fair share of, of various costumes. Um, cause Hershey is who, you know, uh, was the, was Louis the lion. Um, but you know, he couldn't do every single appearance or event. So, you know, there, there was definitely some of that as well, which is classic intern type, uh, of duty, I suppose. Those are tough shoes to fill. Even if for a game, Chris Hershey's. Yes. You know, he was good oh, at what he did. And so, so Andy, would, um, I've got to ask a couple, like, just soccer things. Now we're talking about, we talk about Chris, right? He's, for those that don't know, he was Louis the Lion and Striker Python, right, when the team changed. Um, present company aside, who are some of the incredible professional players you were able to watch during your time with the Portland or franchises? <laughs> But before I before I answer that, I do want to I remember, I believe the first time I ever met you, Billy, and I can't remember the name of the facility, but it was in Tualatin. There was like, I don't know if it was called the Hoop or Costco Sport I, Nation. Yes, Costco Sport Nation. Yes. And they had it was mostly basketball courts, but they had like a um, an indoor soccer slash roller hockey area. And the, and I was thinking of this yesterday. Um, you know, after we had traded emails, you, uh, Nick Vorberg, Zach Chown, um, all from Pacific, uh, I think we're all out there. And I don't remember if it was like a formal practice or what it was, but, uh, it wasn't like a full-time practice venue for, for the Pythons, but, um, but anyway, I, I that, that 
Costco Sport Nation. I'm so glad that you remember that because I was racking my brain and I, I tried to Google and I'm like, no, it just doesn't sound right. But yeah, that was a that was a place. I actually so uh, in terms of players, um, you know, outside of the, of the Portland team, you know, getting to see Precky play for San Jose, um, he was obviously a, a you know on the U.S. national team outdoors, but indoors. That guy was unbelievable. He was probably one of the most impressive. Um, he was LeBron James of the Continental Indoor Soccer League. Tattoo for Dallas uh, was, you know, a Brazilian star. Uh, another guy that just, you know, was a different level. Um, getting to see players like that. Andy Chapman, I don't know if you remember that yes. name, played for the Played for the Detroit Neon, uh, aka Superman, came over. You know, at that time, uh, this is pre MLS, obviously. So you had these these uh, stars from Europe that, at the tail end of their career, instead of coming to you know MLS, um, they would come to the Continental Indoor Soccer League, uh, which is you know really um, amazing to think of. You know, some of the some of the talent that that went through that leg uh, was, was really phenomenal. And then in terms of, of Portland, um, you know, Jeff Betts, that's a guy that, that had he been born, um, you know, 20 years later, uh, you know, he, 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 he was at his prime when, when soccer didn't have a real strong direction in, in this country. And I think that he could have, you know, he would have benefited certainly from from the the professional opportunities that are available now to players uh, here in the states that that didn't exist back then. Um, he did have a tryout, I know, with the San Jose Earthquakes when MLS first started, but at that point, you know, he was a little bit older, I think, and uh, it didn't work out. But just a phenomenal player, um, good dude. Uh, yeah, Rob Bart, um, you know, all those UP guys were were kind of a, a little bit of a click on those teams, but good, good guys. And, and you know, it's been fun to watch uh, how their careers have have uh, evolved to a lot of those a lot of those folks, um, you know, doing great things and, and some still involved in coaching and soccer as well. You, you know, I used to like to tell Robin. Bart's and Jeff Betts talk about their college days at UP by starting the sentence with when I was a kid and watched you play because it made, <laughs> it made them feel nice and old. But I remember that, that Costco Sport Nation, the Portland Trailblazers, that was their practice facility at the time as well, because they so they're just at this open gym. Then they've got a, one court in the back that's for them because they didn't have their practice facility at the time. And our um, soccer arena that you were talking about was small and it was really for, you know, roller hockey Sometimes they throw the turf down for us, but it was like a third the size of the Rose Garden. That's where we played in the now Moda Center. So I, I, we train on some, for something and you think about, you know, distance and spacing and then you get out to the actual game field and it was like three times the size. It was <laughs> it was sometimes a challenge, but, you know, we did it and we were out there playing. And I think about even guys we had like Billy Crook, Ralph Black, who, you know, they came through the Tacoma Stars at a time when indoor soccer was competing with had competed with the NASL and they were, you know, selling out larger arenas and then to be again in that smaller practice facility and, and trying to make a go of it. Um, 
it just seemed like people were enjoying the fact that they were there and playing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really, you know, it was two steps or one step forward, two steps back, it seemed for, for the sport in general for several of those years. And yeah, like you say, the, the, uh, some of those early indoor leagues where you had, you know, the Tacoma stars played in the Tacoma dome and we're, you know, we're packing that place. Um, Dallas always did really well. You know, tattoo was there for years, but um, you know, there were, there were some, some fan bases. San Diego had a, a good following for a while and no one was able to, to sustain it for any, you know, real significant amount of time uh which which was a shame but um but it was a it, it was yeah it was a great opportunity it it's it's bizarre to to think of um you know that you would have these national team level folks you know potentially practicing at costco sports station right. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah it, it was right in fact on the other side of us was where the uh was the daycare it was like the, the back side <laughs> of the goal had the daycare and walking by every morning, I'll see all the kids play. It's like, yeah, it's an interesting setup. So this, you, you mentioned this and um, man, I could talk about tattoo forever. Uh, when I was younger and the MISL was on TV, like he was it, he was my idol. Um, and the cool thing was my first game was against Dallas in reunion arena where they were still polling. Um, I think they had 13,000 that game. Which seemed like a lot yeah. coming from Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon, and oh, then to play against Tattoo, it was just like this is great. And I'll tell you, um, between just you and me, uh, as I'm recording this, I wanted to ask for his jersey after that game, uh, but I didn't because we lost. And I was, you know, Ralph Black was our coach, and I knew that would have been it. <laughs> if he knew I asked for that, <laughs> he would have. But later, Billy Crook said you should have, or just test him. Uh, but you talk about, you know, one step forward, two steps back you went through some different league and team changes with, uh, and we'll talk about the Timbers in a bit, but what happened in the transition between the Portland pride and the Portland Pythons? And that was a uh, 1998 was the first season of the Pythons. Um, so yeah, what was that so transition? The Continental, like? the Continental indoor soccer league was made up of, um, I think every team, but Portland actually was essentially tied to an NBA team and that team's arena. And so, you know, one of the one of the, I guess, selling points for the CISL and, and Ron Weinstein was the commissioner at the time was uh, going to NBA teams in the arenas and saying, "Hey, we we can we can help you put butts in seats in your arena during the the off season of the NBA." And so, having this sort of late spring, summer indoor soccer league um you know it, it was you know potentially a win-win for for those teams portland was owned by a different group it was not affiliated with the with the portland trailblazers so so they were sort of the outlier but one thing i learned early on working in in lower level professional sports it is you're only as as strong as your your weakest team unfortunately when you when you don't have you know a massive uh, uh you know league-wide presence in terms of just number of teams and exposure and popularity um it's it, it it's a real delicate balance and 
you had the Dallases and you had uh, a team like Portland that I felt like was really gaining some momentum. Um, but then you also had teams that, that just sort of mailed it in, especially what was happening was a lot of the folks that were working for the teams in other cities were primarily there because they worked for the NBA team and they didn't necessarily want to take on this extra, you know, the summer was sort of their off season. And now all of a sudden they had to, you know, put on events and, and work these games. And so as a result, I think, you know, the product suffered in, in those cities and ultimately sort of, um, you know, the, the CISL wasn't able to get, um, you know, a national TV deal to to the extent that would actually, you know, help them survive. And so it sort of morphed where you you had the the stronger teams or the teams that wanted to continue on from the CISL reformed in the World Indoor Soccer League. Um, the I believe the CISL owned the names to all the teams. And that was the reason that the pride had to become the pythons. Um, Well, they, they could have become anything, but the pythons was the, was the name that was chosen. Um, So that, that's sort of how that transition went. And that was my first uh, experience. Just, you know, you go from like, you know, the highest highs when you're, you know, things are going well, you're working in pro sports as a young, you know, person that, you know, wants to do this for a career. And then, you know, you feel like the rug gets pulled out from under you and, and everybody else in the organization. And you kind of have to start over again. And, and you hope that this time will be different. And, you know, we got off to a, to a decent start. But, you know, as you know, obviously, um, it didn't last for, for all that long, unfortunately. It's interesting you mentioned the, the weakest team you can't. I mean, we think of the old NASL. You, a lot of people think naturally of the Cosmos, Rowdies, right? Uh, but there was a lot of contraction as it went on. And a lot of teams that, that would, you know, 20,000 when the Cosmos were in town, maybe 5,000 when they weren't in, in the stands. Um, and even the early days of Major League Soccer, there was a lot of teams mm-hmm. that, that weren't around. And it's sort of the same thing. Um, so with that, though, you had some wider jobs. And I want to kind of expand this net here from 95 to 99. We've been talking about the World Indoor Soccer League or, I mean, anything with an ISL at the end of it was an indoor soccer league in this country, and there were so many of them. Um, I want to put into context as we move sort of to the outdoor, but you were with the Pythons of Pride from 95 to 99. In Portland from 1991 to 2000, there was no professional outdoor soccer. Right. That's a that's a large nine year period. It didn't exist here. And in the middle, that's the the World Cup as well. Um, so at that point, you, before you get to that, you, you've seen the full spectrum of what goes into professional soccer. And then it's gone. And we're like the Pythons just just went. What. What does that leave you? Right. Um, so so when, you know, you like you said, you're a young person, things are going great. The sport's gone. Where does that sort of leave you in your career, and what kind of questions does it does it ask? Because we're still, yeah. you know, years from Major League Soccer in '96, um, and that wasn't even here until 2011. So I'm just curious. In 1999, what what was it like um, for you when that happened? Yeah, I was. I have to say, I was. I was super fortunate to get to meet 
and um, know Dave Johnson, who was the radio uh, and TV play-by-play voice for the Washington uh, indoor soccer team, which was called the Warthogs. He also called DC United. Um, they were obviously one of the, the first MLS franchises um, and did pro sports. He was the NBA announcer in that for the Washington. I believe they were the Bullets at that point. I'm not sure if they were the Wizards yet. Um, so Dave was, you know, he, he was a big time broadcaster and getting to, you know, the fact that he was doing indoor soccer um, was was pretty remarkable now that I think about it. Uh, but getting to know him a little bit, um, he uh, it was somebody that that, um, you know, I think I would consider kind of a mentor uh, was very complimentary of my broadcasting and put me in touch with uh, some folks who were covering um, the U.S. national team and, and other outdoor, you know, FIFA events. And that's what allowed me to sort of uh, make the transition ultimately from indoor to outdoor. But I was able to, to do some, some A-League broadcasts, um, get to know the outdoor sport a little bit more from a broadcasting standpoint during those years uh, in the late nineties before the pythons went away. So, um, so at least I had that connection. That was, you know, I, I was devastated like everybody else in the organization when the, the league closed its doors for good, but I felt like at least I had, you know, some opportunities they would be maybe few and far between, but I had I had kind of a uh, a freelance career that was out there if I wanted it. And as you mentioned, this is before the Timbers returned, so you know, we had that that period of of no um, of no professional soccer in Portland. The other thing that I think helped um, can helped sort of build the momentum to bring some level of professional soccer back is, you know, Portland had played host to uh, World Cup qualifiers. Um, I was on the field when Tab Ramos scored against Costa Rica in 1997. Uh, So there was some, there was a little momentum there. So that was encouraging, but yeah, there was a time where, you know, you're like, you wake up in the morning and there's no, <laughs> what I thought was going to possibly be my career is is gone. Yeah. So, and, uh, and, and for a lot of folks, not just you know the broadcaster, but you know the 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 athletes, the front office staff, in in various areas. So yeah, it was uh, it was tough. Yeah, that's challenging. And depending on uh, where you are in your personal life, if you're starting a family or your yeah. you know, marriage or something, and trying to decide, do I keep I don't want to say chasing the game. That was what it was like on a player's perspective, right? Do I do I go somewhere else that may fold, or do I? Just, how much do I do it, or do I go a different direction? That has to be a tough choice when you add the layer, and it is a tough choice when you start adding the layer of being responsible for other people because of being in a relationship or trying to start a family. Um, especially even if a, a league popped up, you know, experience would tell you it's not forever. Exactly. Yeah, and that that certainly played a role. Uh, for me at the time, um, you know, I, I 
I got married in 1998. Um, you know, we, we knew that we wanted to start a family at some point. I moved around a lot growing up. I was the new kid, I think six times in 12 years. Uh, I didn't, I wanted, I did not want that to be the experience for my own, my own kids. And so, um, yeah, so it, it's that, that certainly played a role in, in, I, you know, I had some opportunities. The, the freelance part was great because I could go and travel and do, do games and then come home, um, come home to Oregon. Uh, I had an opportunity. This is so bizarre. And this is one of those things where, you know, you forget about it for years and then it just sort of resurfaces. But I had the opportunity to be the broadcaster calling Dutch league football uh, soccer. Yeah. Um, but I would have had to move to Dallas to, 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 to take the job. And I would have not been able to go to like Holland, to, <laughs> to, you know, to call matches. It was, you know, sitting in a studio watching it on TV and, and calling Dutch league football. Um, and yeah, that, that was like, it was, it was flattering and somewhat exciting to get the offer. And then when I really thought about it, like, no, I, I can't do that. Like that's, I'm not going to do that. So yeah, you, you make, uh, it, it, it was a situation where, yeah, it causes you to, to have to make some sometimes tough decisions. I'd like to think they led that conversation with, would you like to call Dutch football rather than would you like to move to Texas? Yes, absolutely. Just that's a good way to pitch that. And Andy, what I'm hearing here really is I'm disappointed that you did not have a uh, Portland Pythons themed wedding, that that wasn't something that occurred between quarters. Um, I yeah. hope that's not being held against you to <laughs> yeah. this day. It, I did not, uh, for the record, I did not pr- propose at a Pythons game or, or any, any public event for that matter. So, Well, that, that's good advice for anybody, I think. So you you just talked about maybe going to Dallas um, to call it games in Holland. I'm curious about the technical aspects of your career. Um, so, you know, I can talk with some of the players I have and talk about first touch or playing on turf or a new position or coming to the North American Soccer League. Um, but I want to ask you specifically uh, about the differences between calling a game on the radio versus calling it on television. And do either of them sort of change um have you, have you noticed, I mean, obviously there's been an evolution or change over the years, but what's that been like? So, um, you know, what's what, what are the differences between the two from your end when you're calling a game and then sort of what's the job looked like a little bit over the years as it's evolved? Yeah, um, I, I always, you know, I started in radio and really enjoyed, um, you know, I, I would say that that's probably my preference in terms of calling a game um, because you're really calling the play-by-play. You you have to, the, the listener is relying on you to describe what's happening. Uh, it, on TV, uh, you have to really balance the amount of um, obvious play-by-play with, you know, what's happening, you know, on on people's televisions. You know, they, they can see what's going on. So you definitely, uh, I think that at least the way that I approached it and was sort of taught to do it is, um, you know, you lean on your analyst a lot more. You, uh, 
if you have a good one, um, it's the easiest job in the world. You just tee them up and you know they knock them down. Uh, so it's it's you know developing maybe a little bit more of a rapport with who you're working with on television and making sure not to not to step on the action too much. Let things sort of um, let you know. One of the things that's talked about in broadcasting is let it breathe. You know, if there's a big moment. Um, you lay out and and you know let the let the crowd noise sort of tell the story and and the pictures tell the story on TV. Whereas in uh, on radio, you know you're really uh, you know it, the listener is is so much more reliant on on what you're telling them. And so how does that change your prep? Right, like you so you get you get notified you're doing a game, and I'm just curious how how your prep works. And I've seen people's, I don't know if it's called their cards or if there's a technical term for it, right? The notes basically. Yeah. It doesn't have to be yeah, accessible. That, you can't have like this index notebook in front of you. I'm yeah. Kind of it's every, to... Everybody has their own, I think sort of style. There's definitely uh, it's become, it's become such a, uh, a common thing that there are actually folks that do it as a business. So like you could, if you were, you know, if you were XYZ or an announcer for XYZ team, you could basically uh, pay somebody to make that board for you. Um, but yeah, you would have, uh, you know, you have obviously um, name and number, any sort of pertinent bio information, potential records, uh, current stats, um, I would say every broadcaster probably has their own sort of style. I've seen people that don't use anything that it's all up here. And then you see folks that have like, you know, this, this, these giant manila folders that are just, you know, filled with post-it notes and, you know, everything possible, uh, every little nugget of information that's ever, you know, been recorded about a, a, a player or a team. So it's really a, a personal preference. My handwriting is terrible. So I would typically um, try to type. I had sort of a template and would, would type things out. Um, and then on, on television, you know, I, I, I found that I, I probably didn't have as much of the, the paperwork. Um, like I said, I, I was fortunate enough to work with some, some pretty good uh, analysts and you know, it, as long as you you have a uh, you know a basic knowledge of of both teams and and coaches, you know, you, you don't need a whole lot. At least that was my experience. So that's great because one of my I really like listening to when John Strong calls a game. Um, maybe it's a home state bias potentially, uh, but there seems to be a, a preparation in the narrative that's also beyond the numbers, right? That adds some context that's seems pretty unique. You know, it's, it's something personal, but it's not, it's not out there. Like it's relative. And so, you know, mm -hmm. I just, I appreciate what you, that about it. So, yeah, uh, there's, okay. no, that there's a, there's definitely, I think that viewers and listeners are smart. And they, they can tell if you are mailing it in or if you have not done your homework um, or if you're kind of faking it a little bit. 
so yeah it's uh i think that that you know the best broadcasters are are the ones that really um really put the time in ahead of time um to to do the prep work and and you know get to get to know people's stories on a little bit more of a personal level is always you know that always i think shines through in the broadcast you know that's important and that that's what i want to use to segue into your time with the timbers because i think something i've noticed from and i'm not trying to compare eras necessarily but the nasl guys were here building a sport and they got to know the fans and there was a there's a personal connection that's that's sometimes harder in sports right now um in any sport it's just you know it's not not anybody's fault it's just harder but i think the role of a broadcaster can bridge that gap a little bit right and sort of humanize the players on a level that the person listening can identify with um, and I think that's something that, that as a community we were hungry for with the Timbers. I've been uh, in semi-potential mourning because uh, reading about the possibility of Zuperich being traded. Um, I don't know. <laughs> as a, <laughs> I'm struggling with that, that news. Yeah. Uh, uh, but um, so, so segueing back into the Timbers, I want to ask this. In 2001, uh, the Marshall Glickman owned A-League, just A-League, Timbers. Uh, happened and it was coached by former West Ham player Bobby Howe um, and the team did pretty good for a first year team can you tell the people listening about the A-League like what what the A-League was and then just sort of walk through the provenance of um, the Portland Timbers in that iteration coming back yeah so you know the A-League was probably akin to what you would consider uh, the top level of minor league baseball, like triple A baseball is to major league baseball. The A league was to MLS, um, or at least that was, you know, that that's kind of, you know, was the hierarchy in professional soccer at the time. Now MLS back in 2001 was certainly, you know, not what it is today. Um, both from, I think, uh, a competition standpoint, um, but a notoriety and a popularity standpoint and an acceptance as, you know, a major sport in this country. Um, so you had the A-League and the interesting thing about the A-League at the time back then is you had players, especially veteran players, guys who, you know, were, were maybe toward the, the tail end of their careers that, that were, that had been pros for say a decade, they could make more money playing in the A-League in the, uh, and then, you know, at the time there was still a, a pro indoor league back in the Midwest and East coast, they could split their time between the two leagues and make more over the course of a year than they could in MLS. And part of the reason for that was if you signed in MLS and, you know, I don't know all the, the, the details of, of how their contracts work today. Again, it's a different, it's just a different league than it was back then. Um, the, you couldn't, basically they owned your rights and you could not, um, you could not play in another league. So the, you know, if you made the minimum salary in MLS in 2001, you can make, you, could, you might be able to make that or more in the A league. And you can certainly then, you know, help, uh, help increase your overall salary by playing professionally um, in the A-Legs off season somewhere else, whether it's indoor or, um, or outside the U S 
or you know running soccer camps or or being involved in soccer in a way that that you can make a little money on the side um so it it was actually a fairly competitive league that's a you know you had um you had some really good players that, that chose to play in the a league that certainly were good enough to play in mls at the time so uh that that's what one of the things that that kind of made that league and that level uh intriguing you know i remember the uh new orleans riverboat gamblers which is a great name for a, a soccer team uh, but I got to train with them for a week. Uh, Tom Dutra, who coaches the Sounders now, was playing goalkeeper coach there. He's a goalkeeper there. And anyway, went down there for a week and um, went to training. And I was against uh, Stern John. Oh, my and, goodness. And, you know, I've got to tell you, the first, it was just I was a defender. So they, they were doing this drill. And here I was, like, college kid, right? And I, to be honest, I didn't know who he was at first. So I got really tight with him. And of course he turned me, put the ball in the net. So I'm like, okay, next time I'm going to give him some space, which is a bad idea. Cause then he just stood me up and went around me. Um, so <laughs> what I took from that is you, you can't defend against Stern John, but you know, it speaks to your point. Like the, the quality of player in the a league um, was huge. And even some major league soccer teams were um, partnering with a league teams, right? They use it as sort of a farm system at times. So, so 2001 yeah. here. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, no, sorry. I just okay. so so the Timbers come back during the A League 2001. Um, the 2004 season is is kind of an interesting one, um, and this is where I, I do want to remind people that because you talked about AAA baseball, the Timbers were the Timbers owners also owned the owned the Portland Beavers at the time. This wasn't uh, there was minor league baseball, and it was um, it was kind of like indoor soccer, where you know an NBA team could own you know, an indoor soccer team and trying to fill the arena. So without getting to necessarily on the field soccer results, uh, can you first talk about the Beavers Timbers dynamic and how having baseball facing ownership affected the soccer portion? Yeah, it was, it was definitely, um, I think it was, was difficult for, for everyone involved more so on the soccer side than the baseball side, because, uh, I, the baseball at that point, baseball side was considered, I think, the primary tenant, and and, and the seasons overlap, so it wasn't it wasn't a situation where you had one team that played part of the year and then the other team played the other part of the year. They overlapped, so you would have uh, you would have situations where um, you would have a. It, it affected scheduling, uh, the ability to schedule in a maybe a, in a normal cadence for home and away. Uh, you had turnover um, in terms of just getting the field ready for soccer, or the field ready for baseball. Um, you, know, you had you have base paths and pitcher's mound and home plate area that would need to be covered up or not. You know, depending on and and it was not uncommon for the A-League teams to play in stadiums that also had baseball or American football. So, um, you know, that, that was definitely not unique to Portland, but yeah, it, it, it made for, uh, um, I think, uh, you know, a difficult relationship in, in a way because you had the, the soccer folks, um, I think felt sort of like, you know, the second class citizens of, of the organization at times. And, um, 
just made yeah it, it made things harder than maybe that you know that they should have been uh just from an operation standpoint you know when you can use the field um that sort of thing so it 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 was uh it, it was interesting for sure yeah i gotta think that affects training too because they didn't have a training facility in baseball you've got a seven game homestand that's taking up the stadium and and also uh you know i'm guessing the primary business decisions are coming from a baseball perspective at that time. And that could affect it's not, they're not soccer people making soccer decisions specifically. That yeah. seems that could be a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to consider, like, you know, it was, it was triple a baseball. So you had players um, that are, you know, that are, that have major league contracts, you know, um, you have players that, uh, you know, have have massive signing bonuses. So if you're the major league team, you do not want your your player that you've already invested, you know, millions of dollars in salary into. Um, you don't want them compromised when they're playing, you know, and they're preparing in in uh, to play for their for their triple A team by, you know, a soccer team. <laughs> in their stadium yeah so it's it, yeah it, it was uh it was very tricky and and i think that uh the one of the the underlying uh things about that relationship was it started to become evident that the popularity of the timbers was uh was greater than the popularity of the baseball team um certainly from an attendance standpoint and you know a notoriety standpoint the coverage that the timbers were getting and and that added to things because you know baseball was still top dog in the stadium but uh the the timbers players and staff and front office and ev everyone could see that uh you know that the real momentum here for pro sports in portland was on the soccer scene and so, so there's and there's some change going on, and you know, uh, front office change that goes on that has nothing to do with a team like the Timbers, but affects them. And I'm curious when in your position, this is different than a player because players, you, you've got your job is to go out and play, and yeah. you know it's similar in that you, when you're at the, at the field or you're preparing your game, your job is to prepare the game and put other things aside for a minute. But when you're a public facing figure like you are. Um, as far as doing the play-by-play, -play, whether it's radio or television, you know, and you have access and knowledge of situations that may be affecting the product or affecting the season that aren't public knowledge, right? It's just, it doesn't, and it, it, there's no reason to to go into it. Uh, but at the same time, how does something like that affect your job? Oh, it made it really, really um, challenging because from one season to the next, you know, there's so much turnover, not just, in ownership, but you know, on on the staff, front office, um, you know, the the on-field stuff, like you say, it's you know, if you're a player, it's kind of head down, you do your job, even the 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 coaches for to a certain extent. Um, but you know, from a, a broadcasting standpoint, you know, there's so much that goes into the the other parts of the operation of of any pro sports team off the field and when that's changing on kind of an annual basis it's like okay 
who who do I now ask about this? Um, you know, who's setting up the the radio deal this year? Uh, you know, is there going to be a radio deal this year? Am I am I do I need to to you know re-audition or apply for my job again because it's a whole new crew and they don't know me from you know from the next person. So you know that that sort of nonstop kind of hustle every year of of making sure that um, you know that that I would have uh, have a broadcasting job that we would be on a station that we would have you know some kind of, of travel budget and you know, all of that uh, it was uh, you know I, I don't you know I was fortunate I always had a full time job outside of the broadcasting gig so it wasn't like a make or break thing for me but uh, but yeah it was. I, I think almost the best way to put it was it just became annoying. Like every year it was like, okay, who's in charge now? <laughs> and what do they know about, you know, radio and TV and, and are they pro or anti or, you know, that sort of thing. So, or, or is there budget for it or, or not? And, and so it, it was, uh, it, it, it made for some, for some trying times for sure. Yeah, I think most people, as I was just doing, who tried to play professional soccer from the 70s up until Major League Soccer really established itself, uh, listening to this would be nodding along with what you said, right? And it's just, it's annoying. And it's every year. And it's, you know, questions, you just don't know. And when yeah. that red light goes on, or when the whistle blows, you've, you've got a job to do. Um, so I want to talk about something good, though. In 2004, the Timbers were the most successful version of the franchise since 1975. And the, the franchise would be until the 2015 Timbers. What do you remember about that 2004 season, uh, which also happened to be the last season of the A-League? Yeah, it, I think that was when we started to turn the corner a little bit in, in seeing that, that there might be a, a long-term um, soccer presence in Portland, uh, just because the you know, the Timbers army, um, you know, started to make a, a name for themselves. The, 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 it was the place to be, you know, it seemed like in the summer, um, it, it really became an event and, you know, the, the product on the field was improving. Uh, you know, it, it was, I think that there was, there was some genuine hope based on, where the the franchise had come to that point that that if major league soccer continued to operate it was only a matter of time before um before portland would would be asked to 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 step up and and join that league and so so speaking of that you're getting that momentum and then the timbers change in 2005 to usisl the timbers get a new owner right so 2005 is an interesting year. You're nominated for the National Sportscaster and Sports Writers Association Announcer of the Year Award. Um, and it's also a tumultuous three-year period of different coaches, right, until Merritt Paulson eventually buys the team in May. Um, given what you've seen in your career in, in indoor soccer, and we've sort of been talking about this, again, I, I hate to do this, but, in, you know, when that happened, what were you thinking uh, about your career because that's, yeah, that's a specific time for, and that, you know, we're still in the, the Paulson owned era and that's a, 
that time is a big deal because that was the beginning of the end of this not being exclusively a soccer place. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, I think the, again, the off season after 2004, you're just wondering, again, you know, is this really, there's turnover again. Uh, you have the the league changes. I think it went from A-League to the USISL to like D2 Pro League, or I, I forget. D2 Pro, what, exactly. What, is that what it was? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was 2010, like, right. It was it was so hard to do when you don't have consistency in in branding from a league standpoint. Um, you know, many of the teams kind of stayed the same, or or it, it yeah, it just it made things made things difficult. Um, you know, I I think that the what ended up happening when Merritt Paulson bought the team again. He was buying the baseball team. Right. And the Timbers were just like the, you know, they were just attached. Like if you bought baseball, you also got, you also got soccer. And so when that's happening and you have this change in ownership and you're the soccer team and you're sort of the throw in in the deal, you know, you, you don't necessarily know if the ownership group is going to even want to continue to operate you. Um, so I, I think that the, you know, the, the, to Merrick Paulson's credit, after, I think, one full season of the Timbers, he recognized that, you know, the most popular tenant in the stadium was the soccer team, uh, not the baseball team. And that sort of, I think, paved the way for, uh, for the Timbers to, to ultimately become, you know, the, that ownership group's focus and and the team that you know would or the franchise that would end up going on to finally get that MLS bid that that I think you know even in the years prior with all the turnover uh in management and ownership because of the fan uh interest and the popularity and the atmosphere around the matches you know despite all the other stuff that's kind of happening behind the scenes I think everybody that was involved with it um, felt like, you know, this Portland deserves to to be an MLS. We we were drawing more fans for A-League or USISL than some MLS teams were. So, um, so yeah, it was, uh, it, it was definitely thinking back, you know, that was a real, uh, a real odd time. You know, there was, there was some hope there, but then you also sort of felt like, you know, Lucy and, with the football and Charlie Brown. <laughs> right. You've been there before. Uh, you know, it, it goes back to that whole one step forward, two steps back. It's like, yeah. really, is this, are, are we going to continue on the upward path here or is this all just sort of a mirage again? And for a lot of reasons, this is why I'm glad I'm talking to you and why I'm, this discussion is, is one we're having to lead out of, not out of the NASL era in this project, but also to just show that, you know, we're expanding the the, the focus here because We've we've got something special here in Portland. The Thorns and the Timbers is really special, and I'm happy that you know I'm like again I go back to I'm happy my my son and his friends have that. I'm happy there are generations of kids who are going to have that, and it's it's really a beautiful thing when you think about the sport, not just in this country but this town. But to think that not that long ago, right, that turn happened, 
Um, and it was almost happenstantial, right? Because you had an owner coming in to buy the the baseball team, uh, but it did happen. And it's, it's important that it did. And I'm, I'm happy you were there to see it because I'm guessing you've seen some pretty absurd things up to that point. Um, and like you said, year to year, it's pretty tenuous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I think that, you know, even, even still like pre MLS, um, even once it was kind of clear that, Hey, this, this ownership group sees the value in the timbers that, that no one else has seen to this point, at least from an ownership standpoint, um, you know, you still, like I said before, you, you're still sort of waiting for, you know, for it not, to, <laughs> for it not, you know, not for it to fold necessarily, but you know, that th th there would still be challenges ahead. So it's, uh, it is remarkable, you know, the, the stadium now, the, the status of both the timbers and the thorns, um, you know, the popularity of the thorns and, and it's, it's, you know, it, it's a real, um, the, you know, just the passion for, for soccer in Portland, which I think has been here for a really long time, but, um, but now it's like at a stage where uh, I don't think folks are worrying about, um, you know, whether it's going to be here tomorrow. Right. And that's interesting. I want to step outside of this specifically a, a little bit, but, um, you know, not just that the thorns and timbers will be here, but you can actually see, you can watch soccer anytime, anywhere, maybe because somebody's in Dallas calling a Dutch game. I don't know, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's available, right? And it's now, it's an app-based product. And Major League Soccer has the Apple TV deal, for example, Throughout the period that you went through television act and access, it was it was different, right? Um, and there's an interesting period of, and this you know positively affected the NBA not long before from the you know late 70s on, but television access, you saw cable television, um, and those channels were primarily regional based, right? So sport was there were still national things, but sport was still pretty regional based. Can you talk about market and exposure for televising soccer and how you've seen that? changed and how it's changed that profession that you participated in um, and changed the sport over your career? Yeah, I think that the, um, let's see, best way to put this, some, some parts of it are not necessarily unique to soccer where you have these regional sports networks uh, that regardless of who the flagship team or franchise is, um, you know, there, there have been so many over the years and so many different iterations. And, um, you know, as a broadcaster, it was always a little bit of a challenge, uh, sort of like, you know, knowing, you know, back in the early days of the Timbers, you know, is it, it is the new group going to continue with radio uh, for all home and away matches? You know, you had uh, from one year to the next, you might be on uh, Root Sports. Uh, you might be, F you know, it might be Fox Sports Net, uh, DirecTV um, branded themselves. You know, it was, it was, it, it was all sort of just different iterations of the same thing, these regional sports networks. So to progress to the point where it is now, where uh, where you have this centralized, you know, network in Apple TV that's that's covering. Um, I, I really think that 
that they're uh, I, I really think that, that this is a great example of of where we're headed uh, for all sports. Um, you know, they're not necessarily all going to be on Apple TV, but something like that where where you you know these regional sports networks have such a hard time staying afloat um, that you know to to have uh, to have this direct to consumer app version um, that's available at all times. I think that that's what the consumer is going to demand, and hopefully that will that will make things easier for uh, not just the the viewers but also those that that you know those that are working on the the production and the broadcasting side as well. But it was yeah, it was tricky. Like just getting again get, getting to know various producers and directors and people with the different uh, regional networks when it's turning over all the time. Um, it, it made it uh, it made it tricky and and it I think it also it made it difficult to continue to promote the team and and the league the sport um, when it's bouncing around so much uh, and it doesn't have kind of a you know a dedicated home. It's Groundhog's Day. That was that was your life, yeah, uh, professionally. So, so I want to <laughs> I want to ask about something a little bit more celebratory, um, kind of. What's your favorite call? What's something you called that you just love to think back on? Oh, or even that's just appreciate that you, you you know you were there for it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I haven't given a whole lot of thought to that. You know, there were certainly certainly some some incredible players over the years for the Timbers that you know had you know amazing performances or uh, whether it was goal goalkeeper saves or or you know meaningful goals scored. I think though one that I think back to I don't know that it was my it definitely wasn't my best call, but um, it was. Uh, Haka Yuki Suzuki for the Timbers. Yeah. Haka, you know, was a guy that um, was a legend in Japan. Like he was a legit celebrity and played for the national team and, you know, came to the States to play uh, at the tail end of his professional career. And he scored a goal. Uh, I believe it was against the Sounders and it was in Portland. Uh, and it was, you know, I, I, I remember um, I had looked up some Japanese words uh, that season that I hope to kind of sprinkle in, you know, uh -huh. when Taka was doing something on the, on the field. And, uh, uh, and, and I remember using one of them during that goal call. And, and uh, yeah, it, it was one of those words, too, that wasn't a bad word or anything but it, it didn't necessarily the translation from from uh english to to japanese was not necessarily exactly the meaning i was looking for mm -hmm. um so it probably like if if it was someone if someone listened to it that knows both english and japanese they would probably be like what what did he say that for but um it it it, it it's memorable for that fact but also it was just a just such a great goal and and you know, in a rivalry match, it was awesome. Yeah, I've got 
So are there any you want back? Because that could have gone wrong too. Yeah, it was, and I, I still remember it was, you know, I don't want that one back because it it was, I think, you know, comedy or nothing yeah. else, but uh, Tabasaki Takeyuki, I think is what I said. And, uh, and I think Tabasaki meant goal, but like more like, not like a goal, like, um, you know, a, a, it, it counts as a point in a sport, but uh, like a, like a, you know, a career goal or something like that. <laughs> right. I don't know. It, it, but it, you know, it, it, the cadence of it, Tabasaki, Tagayuki. Uh, so that, yeah, that, that's, uh, that, that was, that was something. <laughs> I'm glad you had fun. I mean, it sounds like you had fun with this. And I know. Oh, absolutely. About... I loved. Yeah. Yeah. Calling the games was the best and being able to. And I think that part of it, and you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, the unique um, relationship that, that a team broadcaster has with the, with the team, with the players and the coaches, when you get to know folks, you know, on a personal level and, and you can really, it, it, you know, you, you feel there, you feel the agony of defeat with them, but you also like take such um, happiness and joy in, in their performance and their success on the field. And, you know, I always hope that that kind of came through in the broadcast. Um, you know, when something good was going on, you really, you know, obviously you're, you're trying to, um, you're trying to, to call it properly and, and give the listener or the viewer the information they need to take it in but but you know part of you just as a human like if you know these folks and they're doing these amazing things it it really um you know that that was the best part of the job i think of the actual like calling the game this is the perfect uh jump off to the last question i want to ask if you're good yeah cool um so you've seen a lot in this area with regard to professional sports I don't know anyone else who has your specific experience. Um, and one thing I didn't mention was your work with the Portland Power. So like between that, indoor soccer, all of the iterations of the Timbers, when you look back at sports now here, talking about Portland, specifically the Thorns and Timbers, um, what have we done? Like, where are we? And could you have imagined when you left Maine in 1995, you'd have participated in building this? Oh, well, to answer the last part first, absolutely not. Yeah, I never, I never would have imagined that um, I would have had this opportunity, uh, you know, as a sports fan that really, you know, the one sport that I probably lacked any, you know, legitimate knowledge of was soccer. And that ends up being, you know, one that really, um, you know, I, I had a, a, a long and, and very enjoyable career in, but also helped lead to so many other things um, and so many other opportunities. Uh, it, it's, it, it's been incredible. Um, to see where it is now is just, it's really exciting. Um, you know, it's, 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 oh, it's long overdue. I think you would agree and, and anyone who has been involved in soccer in, in the Portland area, uh, it's it's always had the potential. I think for decades, um, you could feel it and you could see it and you could, you, all of these players that, you know, came over and played 
for the original Timbers back in the 70s that stayed in the area and grew the game. And, um, you know, and, and really, you know, I, my story is, is, you know, pales in comparison as far as like having to, you know, relearn the front office staff every year and, and try to sell myself as the broadcaster every year and, and that, but, you know, to, to, to stick with it for, for all of the, the pioneers for soccer in Portland um, that have, that have stuck with it. Uh, I, I have to think it's just so gratifying for them to see where it is today. And it's, you know, sitting in the stands at, at, um, at Providence park, uh, you know, for a match now and, and, you know, thinking back to the times when I was across the, across the way, calling the, the old A-leg games on terrible, you know, e even worse artificial turf, uh, right. still not a fan of that artificial turf myself, but you know, at least it looks sort of like grass. Now. <laughs> there's no pitcher's mound. Uh, yeah, there's no pitcher's mound. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it uh, you know, it's, it's really, uh, I, I'm happy, I think, mostly for, you know, all the, the folks that, that put so much time and effort in growing the sport. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Jimmy Conway, uh, he was the assistant coach to Bobby Howe for the Timbers. Yeah. Um, legend you know john bain who you've had on the podcast legend uh and just you know great people uh i, I ran into timber jim at the oregon sports hall of fame banquet mm -hmm. a couple weeks back um you know there's just so many people that have played a part and you know when i see them i i really do get the sense that um they knew this was going to happen like for all of the the trials and tribulations and and nonsense uh teams folding you know you name it i i think that the what what really saw this through was the fact that you know no one really gave up and and they they knew this would happen eventually and it did which is awesome andy thank you for coming on and giving us your time and your stories and experience today Absolutely. And and thanks again, Billy, for doing this. Um, we used to play the old green is the color uh, song uh, at, <laughs> at various times, I, I believe, even with the uh, with with the pride, uh, at least in the office anyway. So it's it, it's it's really great to hear it when it comes on the podcast. It's awesome. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks, Billy. You ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at 7-3 To play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee Green is the colour, soccer is the game We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim so let's give all of the boys a cheer for the poor and will